Whew. I'm tired already, right? That's uh, that was a long, long passage. We included our, our passage from last week just so we can get our bearings a little bit. Now, there's a lot there, isn't there? You probably tuned it out like halfway in, right? It's kind of confusing, comp- angels. Well, this will be fun, right? So why don't we pray and we'll, we'll get to it. God, thanks so much for uh, the beauty of your word, even when it is complex and hard to understand. Uh, God, we know that you speak. We believe that. Um, and so we come eager to hear from you. We pray that you do that for us now, Lord Jesus, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let me tell you about our worst year. Um, Kelly and I have a good marriage, uh, but we've, we've certainly had our moments. And there's one year in particular that both of us look back on as hands down the worst year in our marriage, you know, at least to date, right? Uh, it was, it was right, around, right around year six and seven. The first five years, we spent all of our time together. First five years. I mean, it's kind of gross, actually. Um, but when we first got married, we didn't know anybody. We moved to a new place. Uh, we started going to a new church. We both started new jobs. Um, I started seminary. I mean, all we had was each other in those moments. And for the first three years, we, I was in seminary, and Kelly worked right down the street from the school. Uh, years four and five, we both worked together at the church. No kids, one car. We drove together every day for five years. And we went shopping together and hung out together. And, I mean, we did pretty much everything together. In that time, nobody had to tell us to have a conversation. Nobody had to tell us that, you know, quality time is a, is a really good idea. It just happened. Until you're five. Wait a second. Nathan, you said that year six and seven were the bad years. So what happened in year five that brought us to that point? Well, a couple of really good things happened. Uh, first of all, that was the year that we launched this new campus, this, this struggling little fledgling congregation. I was 27 years old. This is my first big boy job. Um, and some of you were here, right, at that moment. I don't know what you were thinking, uh, coming with us, with me, following me. I, I, didn't, I didn't have a clue. Um, I totally felt out of my league. I still feel that most days. So that was happening. It was also the year that we had David, our first, and so Kelly started uh, staying home with him. And these two really, really, really good things in our lives changed everything but we didn't know it yet. We, we had no clue. In fact, if we were to, to look back, I mean, year five was a fine year. It says that was, that was good. But that was the year that we slowly, steadily began to drift. Happy and dangerously oblivious. So what happened in year six, seven? Infidelity? No, not that. Constant arguments about money. No, not, not that either. Difficulties with parenting. None of that. Honestly, all that it was is that we woke up one morning, essentially, and looked at each other and said, what are you doing way over there? We just drifted and, and gone in these, these separate directions, and that's when it started to get messy. You see, nobody tries to end up in a miserable place, right? You know, it's, never, it's never a goal. In fact, frankly, you don't even really notice When you're drifting, you only notice when you end up in a place 
you don't want to be. And all of us have done it, haven't we? It happens in marriages and families. It happens with with good friends. Companies drift. Churches drift. Ideals drift. I mean, by default, we humans, we're drifters. It's what we do. Just think of your New Year's resolutions, for example. How's it going, right? Week two, give or take. I mean, chances are you're not going to wake up tomorrow and just ditch them, right? Chuck it all. But you're probably going to get a little bit more lax, and then a little bit more lax, and then poof, right? And eventually you forgot that you made those goals in the first place. And we do it in every area of life, don't we? In fact, I would go so far as to say that you are either drifting away or you're drawing near. I don't think as humans we ever really just stand still. We are restless creatures, right? Easily satisfied and yet easily dissatisfied. Always desiring and yet rarely fulfilled. You are either drifting away or you're drawing near. And there's no place where the stakes are higher than in what many people have called, you know, for centuries, the, the spiritual life, right? For, for those of us who believe, most people, right, don't just sort of wake up one morning out of the blue and say, oh, I'm just not going to believe any of that anymore. It's pretty rare. But how many of us, even, even now, are taking baby step after baby step just kind of a little bit in the wrong direction? The passion that you had once is kind of fading a little bit. Those sins in your life that you used to fight against with all kinds of seriousness, they're just kind of commonplace now. In fact, they don't even really bother you all that much anymore. The faith that you had is passing. If you're a Christian, chances are you're either currently drifting, have recently drifted, or will soon be drifting. And even if you're not a Christian, and you're you're here this this morning, glad that you're here with us, I'm guessing you know what I'm talking about too, right? You've drifted from all kinds of good things. We we know how easy it is to, to look at a good thing, to say, yes, I want that, and to slowly, steadily drift away, regardless of your beliefs. And we wake up in a place we don't want to be. Sort of like this couple, Ben and Sarah, if you were here with us last week, we ima- imagine this couple. Ben and Sarah, we get, those are the names we gave them. They, they lived back in the, the 60s, 80s, so a really, really, really long time ago. Um, they grew up Jewish. They had encountered Jesus. They, hadn't, they weren't eyewitnesses of him, but they had heard from eyewitnesses about the things Jesus had done. And they, they saw him, even though you know, they grew up Jewish, as the fulfillment of all the things that they had been pointing to. They gave their life to Christ. Several years passed. And they and others like them in their church had drifted. And we don't know why. We don't know if they're bored or disillusioned or somehow disappointed. And yet they were this close to just ditching Jesus altogether. And they head to church one day. They sit down in their congregation with their fellow drifters. And the preacher gets up, we don't even know who he was, and preaches a sermon that we now know as the New Testament book of Hebrews, written down in this book 
for us. And last week we talked about the first three verses. And we summarized, right? We tried to lay a, a framework for the whole book. We summarized the message of Hebrews pretty simply, right? That, that you can't do better than Jesus. That, that's what the author's trying to communicate over and over. You just, you can't do better than Jesus. And uh, we kind of had an equation, right? A very, very simple. Jesus is greater than blank. I think we've got a slide for it somewhere. Um, it's just it's the simplest way that I can think of to, to summarize what this book is about. No matter what you put in that blank, it doesn't matter. Money, sex, food, family, work, really good things. No matter what you put in that blank, that equation is always true. In fact, we make cards for you. They're underneath your chair if you didn't grab one last week. Uh, take one with you um, and put it in your Bible or put it on a mirror someplace where you can just regularly remind yourself as we go through this, this book in particular, but always. You, just, you can't do better than Jesus. That's what the author is trying to communicate. Because you see, Hebrews was written for drifters like me, like you. And so this morning, we're going to ask three questions of this lengthy and fairly complicated text. Three questions. Why do we drift? Why is drifting so serious? And how do we keep from drifting? That's kind of our roadmap. And here's the big thing for us to remember. You're either drifting away or you're drawing near. So, why do we drift? We drift because we're drifters. It's just kind of what we do. Sorry, if you're looking for something more profound, that's the answer. We drift because we're, we're drifters. I want to start actually in the middle of our text, okay? Um, I know it's a big one, right? So we're right smack in the middle. Chapter 2, verse 1. Um, the preceding verses, we'll get there, or complex, right? Talked about angels and all that kind of stuff. It's important, but a little bit confusing. In 2 verse 1, though, that's where the therefore is in the, in the text, um, which makes it our, our, key, our key verse for this morning. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, the word there for pay close attention, it's kind of soft in the English there. Uh, in the original language, it, was, it would be like a, a furious obsession. And the author is saying, pay attention to this as if your life depends on it or you will drift. That's kind of, kind of the idea that he's getting at. And we drift because that's, that's who we are. It wasn't always this way. You know, back in the, in the garden, uh, that perfect place that God created for us without sin, before we rebelled against our maker, um, we weren't drifters then. But ever since we chose to go our own way, we chose and we continue to choose, right, to replace God with our broken desires, even though he is only the one who will ultimately satisfy us. And so now, in this quest for satisfaction... We never stop moving, always searching, always striving, right, for the next thing that'll make us happy, the next moment of, you know, euphoric feelings within that remind us why we like life, always searching for those experiences. As a result, we almost always end up drifting. And I seriously doubt any of us would argue much against that, right? We're drifters. You know it. I know it. We've seen it countless times in our lives. One of my old professors writes, 
one of the most striking evidences of sinful human nature lies in the human and the universal, universal propensity for downward drift. People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. Yeah, I'm probably doing that. Probably done every one of those things at some point. I mean, we even see it in the natural world, don't we? For all you science nerds out there, the second law of thermodynamics, anybody? Right? We all know what that is, don't we? Okay, maybe not. It's the idea that everything, an ordered system, never gets more ordered, right? It either stays the same or it falls apart. Always in the natural world. That's, that's the second law of, of thermodynamics. Um, that's, that's, the way, that's the way it works. Things don't improve by themselves. They fall apart by themselves. It happens in nature. It happens in relationships. It happens in here with me and my heart. Drift happens. Yeah, but who cares? I mean, why, is, why is this a big deal? If, we just, if we're drifters and we're just going to drift, then, then who, who really cares? Why is it so serious? Well, it's serious because of who we're drifting from, what we're drifting toward, and the evidence there is against us, our lack of excuse that make it a life or death pursuit. Now remember 2-1, okay, in the text, it began with a therefore, pointing back to the previous verses. Well, what are, the, what are those verses about? Uh, it's chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. It's a long section about Jesus being better than the angels. Now, he's the one we're drifting from, okay? Angels. Okay, I guess that sounds important. But, I mean, do we really care, <laughs> right? I mean, what, why would the author do this, right? It sounds like some, you know, cheesy Lifetime movie all of a sudden. And this, uh, angels, okay, fine. Well, just quickly, I mean, the, this, the Bible, right, it talks about angels, okay? Um, I realize some of us don't believe in angels, right? They're hard to get our mind around. If, if you come from a, a totally materialistic framework, then any sort of divine or supernatural being is kind of outside of that. I, I get that, okay? We, we have different frameworks, um, this book seems to teach, right, that they're real, um, but I, they're not what we often think of, okay? They're not dead people, okay? We don't, like, get our wings and become angels after we die. It's not, that's not what happens, okay? Uh, don't, ever, don't ever think that or say, that's just, that's not, not it. Um, we're not just silly creatures, right? Bell ring or whatever, get wings. It's not, it's not that. And, and this, this book, it also doesn't, like, show that this, encountering them is, like, a normal experience, there's a lot of stories of people who encounter them, but those stories are in here because the people encounter them, right? It's not like it's a normal event for all of us, okay? It's the exception, not the rule. That's an important thing to keep in mind. But what are they? Well, God made them, okay? That's, that's what this book says. Um, either at creation or shortly before. 
And he made them to, to serve three kind of main purposes. We see these all over in the Bible, but in particular, we see them even in, in our text in Hebrews. Three things. Uh, angels exist to worship God, to serve and protect God's people, which is the one that we usually think of, right? We kind of get obsessed with that one. We all have our guardian angel and all that. I'm not saying that's whatever, um, but that's what, we, that's what we think of, but that's probably the like, last, actually, on, on the list of what, what they do. Uh, and third, they work as God's messengers, and that last one especially is key for what, what the author of Hebrews is doing. So kind of put that away. We'll get to that. But that is, everything that this argument that, that he's making is all about the fact that these are God's messengers. So people in the Old Testament, they believe that the angels were the one who brought the prophets the message of, of God's word. Okay? In fact, angel just means messenger, both in the Greek and in the Hebrew. It means messenger, somebody who brings a message. Okay, so that's kind of, that's kind of them. They're pretty cool, I guess, right? But Jesus is better. He's a lot better. Take a look. This is what the author is, is doing here as he builds his argument. He has seven Old Testament quotations to sort of prove that Jesus is better than the angels. Because I know we're all arguing that, right? Um, he, but he, he, wants, he wants to hit it hard. That's, that's why this text is so complicated, because there's seven Old Testament quotes all throughout. But let's, let's try to work through it a little bit. Because this preacher clearly believed that the Old Testament is God's word um, and that it was authoritative, right, as he proclaimed it to these people. Now, the trouble is, if you're familiar with the passages that are quoted, okay, just a quick warning, okay, this is the dense part of the morning. Um, so if this stuff doesn't appeal to you at all, just get out your cell phone and check your email or whatever. Um, but for those of you who are in it, right, uh, this is, this is, this is going to pay off in a few minutes, I promise, all right? But we've got to get through some of this dense stuff before we get to the big punch of what the, the author is really trying to communicate. Um, but if you're familiar with the, the text that he quotes, uh, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, for example, um, many of us read those passages this week. They were in our reading plan, so if you're reading along, uh, we did that. Uh, but you might think, if you know those passages, it's like, okay, those are clearly about King David. They don't have anything to do with Jesus, so why is the author saying that this is about Jesus? It's a pretty good question, right? Well, this is how cool the Bible is, in my opinion. This is how tightly written it is, how beautifully it all weaves together. Sometimes this is referred to as typology, okay? It's an important word that it's really something you probably don't need to remember. It's okay. Um, but it's called typology, um, and it basically, it's the idea that we as Christians, now looking back at the Old Testament, can, can see glimmers of Jesus everywhere. That we could say, okay, yeah, this passage, I mean, it's clearly about King David. Of course it was. And yet we know together that Jesus is the true and better David, right? That he is the ultimate fulfillment. I mean, that's, that's why we've, we've titled the series what we have. That's why we watched the video again uh, this morning. This idea that he is true and better the author of Hebrews does this constantly. It's the beauty of this book, the Bible. If you're looking for Jesus, you can find glimmers of him everywhere. And so essentially, when we read these passages, together we can say, yeah, of course, they're about David. In the original context, when they were written, it was about, it was about King David. And yet Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. Because Jesus is who this story is ultimately all about. So for example, okay, verse 5 as it continues, for to which of the angels did God ever say, and here's one of the quotes, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, in another quote, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. 
So only Jesus is God's son. Angels don't get that title, so Jesus wins, right? He's better. Check. But it kind of sounds like here that the author's almost saying like there was a time when Jesus became the son and maybe he wasn't always around. And Let me just really quickly say the author and what we talked about last week and what we're going to get to in just a moment, clearly believe that Jesus has always existed, that Jesus is God himself, that he's always been God's son and all the mis- mystery that that is. And so why these words like begotten, you know, to have sort of come in like that? What, what's going on there? Well, remember that they're first about David, right? In their original context, they're first about King David. And so it makes much more obvious sense there. But I think what the author is doing is he's saying that, yeah, there, there wasn't a time when Jesus wasn't or, or when Jesus wasn't the son, but at the, the victory of the cross and the resurrection, it was as if Jesus stepped into his full inheritance as a son. It was that triumphal moment when he sat down on God's right hand that God said, yes, this is my son. Not that he never was before, but it was this, this moment. That make a little bit of sense? I mean, it's, again, it's kind of confusing what the author's doing here. Hopefully it'll, it'll come clearer as we go. That's not the only reason that he's better, though. Uh, the next two Old Testament quotes are uh, about the angels, about what the angels do that kind of set them apart. Uh, one is that they serve, and the other is that they worship Jesus. Okay, so if they worship Jesus, clearly Jesus is better. Okay, we know that. also implies that Jesus is God, because why else would they worship him? And if the subtlety hasn't been enough, okay, you're still kind of worried about the ambiguities here. The next two Old Testament quotes get it all out on the table for us. Look at verse 8. Of the Son, God the Father says, Your throne, O God, he calls Jesus God, which is interesting, is forever and ever. Skip down to verse 10. And you, Lord Jesus, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. And then in verse 12, And you, Jesus, are the same, and your years will have no end. I mean, you can't get much clearer than that, right? He is God. He's the eternal king. He's the unchanging creator, the author. Just like last week, he doesn't want us to miss that this man, born in a manger, murdered on a cross, mysteriously risen again, is not just some guy. He is God himself there in the flesh with him. That he, He's in a completely different category than the angel's. And the final quote there is that he's the victor, right? He's the winner over death and hell. All that is evil, he is victorious. So yeah, he's better than the angels, right? But he's also the one that we're in danger of drifting one, drifting from. So yeah, this is, this is pretty serious, right? This is, this is Jesus himself, God himself, our, our creator, the one who exists eternally the one who came to bring us back to himself. And if you lose Jesus, you lose everything. He's everything. I heard a story recently about a couple who went on vacation. And they went, they went snorkeling. Anybody ever? Kelly and I have gone a couple times. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun, right? There's like this whole beautiful world underneath the water. And just to lie there floating and being able to see it all. It's, it's amazing. And so this, this couple went, and the first time they went, they went with a group, and they had a guide and all that. It was pretty expensive, but they loved it. I mean, it's just such an incredible experience. And they decided, well, we've done it, right? We know how to do it now. Um, so instead of going with a group and a guide and paying all that money, let's just, let's just go out and do it by ourselves. And so they did. 
And at first it was amazing, right? They didn't have the, the, the leader, the, you know, the guide or the group to kind of hold them back. They could, they could go and they could explore to their, to their heart's content. Um, and if you've done this before, you know that, I mean, you don't really look up all that much, right? Because your head's down, you can breathe underwater, you don't want to miss anything, so you're just sort of there floating head down. So they did that for about 30 minutes. And then they decided to look up and kind of get their bearings. And to their horror... The shore wasn't exactly where they'd left it. Not even close. Completely unknowingly, they'd been swept into a current and they drifted far, far, far out into the ocean. And at that moment, it's not simply what you're drifting from that's scary, from the shore. It's scary. It's also what you're drifting toward, isn't it? Dehydration, drowning eaten by sharks, right? Take your pick. What's worse? It's hard to even decide. And the author is saying here that this this is what's happening to us or what could happen to us. It's not that we're just drifting from Jesus, as important as that is. It's also that we're drifting towards our own death. Look back at chapter 2. Because this, this is the whole point now, okay? Everything about the angels, it's all building to this section, right? This is the therefore. Back in chapter 2, begin with verse 1 again. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Hang with me. We're almost there. Okay, this is the point of the angels thing. The the author's using a brilliant rhetorical device of that era, an argument from lesser to greater. And here's generally my paraphrase. He's saying there to this this group of Jewish believers, right, people who had grown up in Judaism, they knew the Old Testament, they knew it well. He's getting up and he's saying to them, okay, we know what happened when the prophet's message, which came from the angels, they believed, was ignored. I mean, God sent messengers to them, to our forefathers, and they were ignored. And judgment came. The exile, the destruction of the temple, violence, famine, disease, all of it. That's what happened to them. And now God has sent his son. And we've already said he is way better than the angels. So what's going to happen to us if we neglect such a great salvation? I mean, it's one thing to ignore the angels, and we saw what happened. It's another thing to ignore the Son of God himself. Think of it this way. Imagine if you uh, received a package in the mail, and the UPS carrier is at your door, uh, hands it to you, you take it, you look at it, and you realize it's from somebody that you just, you don't want anything to do with anymore. Um, And so you politely tell the UPS carrier, "Uh, I don't think so. Return to sender, you hand it back, you shut the door. Maybe, maybe you've done something like that before. And when your ex-friend receives that package, they're going to be insulted, right? Yeah, of course they are. I mean, kind of, kind of your point in some ways, right? You don't want anything. You're cutting off completely. I don't want it. That's insulting. But how much more insulting if the next week there's another knock at your door and you open it this time there, standing there with that same exact package, is your ex-friend. 
And there she is, with love in her eyes, pleading with you for reconciliation, longing for you. Just, just take it, please. And you slam the door in her face. How much more insulting, how much more degrading is that experience? And the author is saying that we who are drifting, we, that's what we're doing. It's one thing to ignore the messengers of old. It's, it's another thing altogether to ignore Jesus, God himself, who has come to rescue us. When we drift, we drift to our own peril. We drift toward death. Listen to these words of Miroslav Volf. He says, God will judge not because God gives people what they deserve, but because some people refuse to receive what no one deserves. Mercy, grace, forgiveness, love, that kind of thing. If evildoers experience God's terror, it will not be because they have done evil, but because they have resisted to the end the powerful lure of the open arms of the crucified Messiah. And we have no excuse. We try to make excuses. I love, I love a good excuse, Right? Try to find a way to excuse our unbelief, our disobedience, our mistakes, to sort of, you know, dust our, our, our drifting under the rug and pretend it's not really there. Or we just assume it's not really our fault. The evidence is piled against us. If we were to look at these next couple of verses, the, the, the preacher there, he says that the, the entire Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bear witness to these things that Jesus is better and even, even the, the evidence of the eyewitnesses, right, and, and that day who had, who had seen it. Christianity didn't start with people talking about what they believed about Jesus, but what they had seen Jesus do. And sure, here we are 2,000 years later. And yet we are still without excuse. You're either drifting away or you're drawing near. And the stakes are just too high. Every one of us here knows what it's like to drift. And if you're, if you're just kind of exploring Jesus, right? Again, we're so glad you're here. You're not, you're not really sure what to, to make of him, but, but, but you're here. And the same is true. You're either drifting away or you're drawing near. And if you're, you're here as a Christian, every one of us is at risk. Some of us are drifting away right now. Some of us know it. Some of us don't. And some of us will drift away from Christ and never come back. I'm not going to lie to you. Hebrews is a scary book. Chock full of terrifying warnings just like this one. It's written to drifters. People who are lost at sea, dehydrated, and soon to be devoured. I mean, it's, it's almost like the author, uh, he's trying to like reach down and, and grab us, right, by the shirt collar to shake us a little bit and say, come on, Jesus, he's better. You can't do better than him. You're either drifting away or you're drawing near. And so what is it going to be? Which? So how do we keep from drifting? Well, he already said it, didn't he? It's nothing all that profound. He says, therefore, and verse 1, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. We keep from drifting by drawing near. We pay attention 
the things that we have heard with a furious obsession. Well, what does that even look like? Well, first, if you want to keep from drifting, first you've got to determine which way you want to go. I think a lot of us drift just because we don't know any better, right? We just don't, we're just kind of out there, kind of doing whatever, and so, of course, we're, we're moving all over the place from one desire to, to the next. We don't know where we're supposed to be headed. Well, I believe the best way to figure that out is, is here in this, this book, to, to read it, to, to learn it. I, th- th- this book, the Bible, it's not, just a, it's not a list of rules. It's not a bunch of sort of inspirational stories to grab our attention. It is centered upon this Jesus offering us the very best life. I believe that. Describing the, the way that the, the most flourishing and satisfaction comes through this. I believe that. Pay attention to this book. Read it, study it, talk about it with others. Listen to it taught in church. Grab one of these bookmarks, right, and read along with us. This is our reading plan for this month. Just a a chapter a day, just to simply read it. If you refer to yourself as a Christian, but don't spend regular time in this book, you will drift. It's just inevitable. I mean, and really, why would you expect better at that point? And if you're not a Christian, maybe you're you're curious. Maybe you're not curious, right? And you're just here because somebody bribed you with lunch or something, whatever. Glad, glad you're here, but why not start reading it? Read, read this book that you are rejecting. Don't you want to know what you're rejecting? And as you do, ask yourself, what, what do I want my life to look like? What do I want it to be? Today, for all of us, make a plan to read this book. When, what, how, How are you going to make it happen? This is life or death, people. Draw near or drift away. Second, if you don't want to drift, let somebody else lead. Because it's not simply enough to listen to these words, right? Or even to to say that you believe them. Uh, Paying attention means obeying them. It means letting someone else take the lead in your life. It's kind of like when I use my Garmin Nuvi, right? I love my, my GPS. I'd be lost without it literally. Um, I love it, but it wouldn't matter, right, if I pay furious attention to all the directions, you know, listening so closely, looking at the pictures. I mean, if I ignore her, right, if I don't turn when she tells me to turn, it really doesn't matter, does it? And some of us, I think, we assume we're good Christians, or at least good enough Christians, drift-proof. But if you were to sit down and actually think through who is in charge of your life, most of the time. Who's calling the shots? The shots? Who's setting the priorities? Who's making the schedules? Is it you or is it him? And for example, ask yourself, when, when, I, when you read this book or you, you hear it taught um, and you don't like something it says, okay, which if you're reading it, that will happen, right? Inevitably, right? It's a hard book. You know, maybe you don't like its teaching on, on sexuality, or, or maybe, maybe you just you read something, and you're like, my life is not this, right? And you don't like what it says, and you know that it says to obey, you know, you be generous, or patient, or forgiving, or, or, you know, whatever. All these really, really hard commands. When you see that, and you begin that argument in your mind, who wins? You or him? Because it really, I mean, if we just sort of pick and choose, Right? 
We just say, well, I like this part, and this, this makes me feel good, and well, I'm already doing this, so I'll keep that in. I mean, if we're doing that, then we're our own God, aren't we? We're the one deciding what's right and what's wrong. We're, we're deciding what the best way of living, and we are still in charge. How is it working out? I'm terrible at running my own life. I mean, that's one of my, one of my biggest reasons for being a Christian is because I figure I'm better off with somebody else calling the shots. I've made enough mistakes, and I know what lives in my heart. I know the darkness that's in there, so I figure I'm just going to let him do it for a while. Even though I falter along the way, the, that, we have to ask ourselves, who is it in charge? If you compromise here, you will drift, just like those snorkelers without their guides. Today, right now, ask yourself, am I really the best person leading my life? And finally, to prevent drift, always bring a buddy. Just like kindergarten, you know. The buddy system, it was good back then, it's good now. Nine times out of ten, you will drift, I will drift, and we'll have no idea. Right? And, until like way later, and it's like, well, how did that happen, and how do I get back? And it, it's terrifying and confusing. When the reality is there are people in your life right now, I bet, I mean, if you're living in community with anyone, who know whether or not you're drifting in certain areas? Have you asked them? I mean, are you living in, the, in those kinds of relationships with people that you trust and love that you could say to them, you know what, would you just let me know if there's something area in my life where I just am moving in the wrong direction? If you don't want to drift, then don't try to live this life alone. Today, find somebody to initiate the conversation with. Man, you've known me for a while. What do you see in my life? Where am I at risk? Would you tell me? Draw near or drift away. Those snorkelers lost at sea. I mean, what do you think they did, right? I mean, with furious obsession, right? They swam. They, they paid attention as if their life depended on, on the shore. That's all they did. They didn't care about snorkeling anyway. They didn't care about anything. It was all focused on getting back to shore in our marriage, right? When Kelly and I realized where we were at and the risk we were in of being miserable forever, because we don't think divorce is an option, and what that would have been like, I mean, it's major changes. And the way that we spend time together and our priorities and the things that, that matter most to us, and that's still my priority, right? More than my work, more than my kids, Listen to that, parents. Your kids need a healthy mom and dad more than they need 100% of your time and devotion. A healthy mom and dad. Because we either drift or we draw near. But we're not alone here. Because he has drawn near to us. Our God has come and he is better. He died for drifters like me. And he rose again to, to hold us tight, offering life and forgiveness. And, and we can never drift beyond his reach. Never. And we ent- when we enter this life through faith, and that's the only thing that can save us, no amount of paying attention, being good enough or whatever, checking off your list, nothing like that can possibly rescue you, can rescue me. Only faith in this Jesus who came to save us. But when we come to faith in him, He will never let us go. So are you drifting away? Or are you drawing near? It's kind of a big question, right? One of the things that we want to do 
this morning is just give us an opportunity to demonstrate our faith, uh, to, to physically draw near as we gather around the Lord's table uh, and participate in communion together. This is something that Christians have done for, for centuries, right? Something that that, that church 2,000 years ago, right? Ben and Sarah's church, whoever they were, something they did that we also participate together of taking this bread and this cup, um, remembering Christ's death and resurrection. But before we do that, um, I know I need to pause, right, to think about this in my life. I would imagine many of us do as well. And so why don't we just sit here for a minute uh, and think about those questions together. Uh, Sit quietly and reflect on these things. They're on the screen here. What What would it look like for you to drift away? And what would it look like today for you to draw near? Let's pray and reflect quietly together now. Lord Jesus, we are drifters. I'm a drifter. And so would you draw near to us? And would you enable us by your grace to draw near to you? And would you hold us close? God, we believe these things to be true. God, and for those who don't, for those who are still wrestling, God, I pray that this would be a moment when you could speak into their lives. Help them see that you offer a better way, the ultimate fulfillment of our desires through you. And so God, now as we come to your table, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would meet with us, that you would commune with us even as we uh, gather and commune with one another. And so we trust you for these things in Jesus' name, amen.